You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 179, What is the New Apostolic Reformation with Holly Pivick? I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Well, Mike, I guess we're still here. We're way after yes, September 23rd, so we are unfortunately still here, but happily still here, I guess. Yeah, I mean, think about that. You know, we, we must be prophets. We, we yes, must be prophets. We are prophets. Uh, I don't know if that kind of goes hand in hand with what the topic of today's episode is, but I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> claim that me and you might be some prophets. Hey, you know, we and we can even bolster that claim because now the new date for the world ending is, I think, October 19th. So we get to do this all over again and again, validate our prophetic credentials. Boy, we, we are so smart. <laughs> You want to talk uh, fantasy football or you want to get right into this? No. (laughs) Again, I am winless uh, or another loss, so we can just get right into this. (laughs) No need to talk about fantasy. That's... You know. no, no need to remind the audience that the pugnacious pugs are now three and zero, and at the top, yes. at the top of the league, you are dominating. You are crushing it. So, hat off to you. But that'll change once me and you meet several weeks from now. So, Maury and I have a pre pre lineup uh, meeting, and you know I'm just oh. taking direction. <laughs> He's probably setting your lineups. That's why you're doing so good. <laughs> but uh, uh, as crazy as your team doing good. What's even more crazy is the subject matter of this show. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We have uh, something really interesting to get into today. Yeah, I'm very interested in this because um, it's fascinating. It's going on. And so I'm interested to learn more about it. Well, we are very uh, happy, very thrilled, actually, to have Holly Pick on the podcast with us today. Holly's work is something I uh, have followed uh, I guess fairly closely. I, I, you know, came across her her blog and a few things about her online. Wound up getting uh, the book that she co-authored on the New Apostolic Reformation, and that's going to be obviously our topic for today. And so I, I want to start out by Holly. Why don't you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of your background and how in the world you got drawn into this particular subject. You know, what oriented you to say to yourself? Hey, I really need to devote my my ministry life or a good part of it to alerting people to the new apostolic reformation. How'd that happen? Yes. Well, I worked at Biola University for about 10 years. I was the managing editor of Biola's magazine and I was the university editor there and in that capacity I received correspondence from readers And one day, a reader from Colorado Springs contacted me, and she asked me if I knew of a professor at Biola who could write some type of book in response to this movement she told me about called the New Apostolic Reformation. She said it was taking over churches in her city, and she was very concerned about it. And that piqued my curiosity because I liked research uh, cults and aberrant groups, and I had never heard of this movement. 
And so I started digging a little bit around online and realized that this movement was extremely large, extremely influential. I was shocked I'd never heard of it before. And on top of that, I started putting pieces together and realizing I had friends who were involved in this movement. And I I didn't know it because I had no framework for interpreting it until I began digging and researching its teachings and practices. And I kept thinking, someone will write a book. (laughs) Someone will surely write a book about this movement. And um, time kept passing, time kept passing, and very little had been written in response to this movement and taking its teachings and, you know, holding them up to scripture and Mm -hmm. seeing how they stand up. And so a few years ago, I contacted Doug Guyvet, who's a philosophy professor at Biola University, Mm -hmm. and asked him if he would be willing to co-write a book with me. And he agreed. And so we ended up writing two books about this movement. One is called A New Apostolic Reformation, A Biblical Response to a a Worldwide Movement. And that is a larger book. It's much more thorough, heavily documented. And the smaller book is called God's Super Apostles. And that book was intended to be kind of a quick read, a quick introduction to the movement. And it has a lot of um, more practical advice for, for people who've been caught up in this movement or know someone who's caught up in this movement. So um, mm-hmm. more of a more of a layperson's book. Right. Yeah, We I, I did the same thing with, uh, you know, Unseen Realm is my academic book on, you know, the unseen world. And we, we did a, a companion to it for basically just, just what you described. So that, that's a good strategy. Um, yeah, that, that's good for our listeners to know that both of those exist. Now, you, you, you had been into apologetics, though, just generally, correct? I mean, you have a degree from Biola in that? Right, that's correct. I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola. Okay. And I've also now, been running my blog, Spirit of Error, you mm-hmm. know, for a number of years about this movement. Yeah, we will. We're going to be obviously putting links to to your site uh, on the episode page and a link for the book, uh, both of them, uh, in conjunction with this. Did just real quickly, did Doug had he heard of this when you approached him about the book? Yes, the reason I approached him initially is I had seen that he had been interviewed uh, for a newspaper article about Todd Bentley and the Lakeland revival that was going on mm-hmm. about that time, and so I thought, huh. Uh, you know, Doug seems to share some concerns about this movement. And, and so uh, that's one of the things that prompted me to contact him. And I had known him from my time working at Biola as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's interesting. I mean, my, I mean, my listeners will know that uh, having you on to do a full episode, uh, and we've, we've mentioned it, you know, leading up to this, you know, there's an element of self-interest here for me because I, you know, I, I, jokingly refer to it as my superpower. My superpower is apathy. And what I mean by that is I just don't pay any attention to pop Christianity and its movements and the movers and shakers. I, I honestly just don't care. You know, I, I'm, I'm a text guy. Uh, that's where I'm oriented. I, you know, I read peer-reviewed material. I don't really pay attention to anything else. And I'm sort of in this you know, little bubble, even though I try to produce a lot of content for free for the average person. But I'm just not. I don't have my head in any of this. And I, our exposure as as a podcast and as listeners so to anything that sort of remotely touches on this has been through uh, ministries of some people we support who minister to uh, dissociative 
disorder, you know, ritual trauma survivors, they all come out of deliverance ministry. So they're, they're very suspicious of deliverance ministry. And through them, I've, I've heard about the NAR and AR, and that drew me into a little bit. I started looking at some things. That's when I found your website and the book and so on and so forth. So I, I, on, on one hand, I have this peripheral, um, attachment to the issue but it's through those same people who first sort of put this on my radar. They have told me that they have heard or read people in the NAR or, or people they think might be in the NAR. And that's one of the questions I have for you. There, there's this sort of nebulous kind of aspect to all this. But, but using my academic work, you know, which is about um, you know, the unseen realm, heavenly host, you know, demonology, all that stuff, that, that's my academic focus. But using some of that to to sort of springboard certain ideas they have, or you know, tr- you know, kind of name drop, you know, that sort of thing. And I haven't seen much of that directly, although I've gotten a few uh, website uh, links, and I've had email conversations with a few uh, people that I, you know, I don't know, maybe they are in this or not. But again, I, I've tended to sort of just you know not really pay too much attention to it in terms of like involvement or, or addressing it. But when I do run into it, it's really disturbing. (laughs) I mean, it's disturbing stuff. And I I don't know, we've, we've had brushes in our family with, again, the the term that other people would use is charismania with this kind of thing. And it, it has, I'll just put it this way without getting into too many specifics. It, it, it's, it can really be destructive. I mean, it, it can really be destructive on a personal spiritual level uh, it becomes sort of a a, a new performance oriented experience oriented approach i guess is maybe a kind way to put it uh, to to christianity or to the gospel which i don't view i i view as not really understanding what the gospel is in the first place it doesn't mean they're not believers or anything like that but i think you know our audience will get the idea but i i've just seen it really you know move from something that's kind of funny like I've seen a Todd Bentley video before. Okay, like well, that's kind of cartoonish and bizarre. But then when you sort of see it affect people that you know, and you get a little bit of a sense for the bigness of it, uh, it, it really becomes something a lot more serious. And so that's why I wanted to have you on again. Just again for our listeners, they're going to have a little bit of context for this. But I, I just want I wanted to devote an episode of the podcast specifically to explaining this and you were, you just seem like the best person in the world for this. So I, I'm just really glad that you came on. So what, after the, now that we've gotten to know you a little bit, what is, let's just start here. What is this thing? Okay. If, if you again, walked up to somebody, had a conversation, you know, you're at some event or whatever, and you got to talking about the Lord, then that somebody brings up either the, the term new apostolic reformation or asks about it, how would you give people a basic introduction into what this is? And along with that, how would you identify it? Like, like we, we want a little definition, what is it? And then how do you spot it in the field? You know, <laughs> it's natural sure. habitat. <laughs> okay. sure. How do you well, do that? The thing is, um, first of all, most people have not heard of the term New Apostolic Reformation. And so I want to point that out right away. If you ask somebody if they were part of that movement, many people wouldn't know what you were talking about. Many leaders in this movement will even deny that they are part of this movement. Um, so so that's really important to recognize. Uh, 
But the NAR is a movement of churches and organizations that are defined by their belief that their leaders are present-day prophets and apostles. And that would be on the order of like the Old Testament prophets like Moses and Elijah, Christ apostles in the New Testament. And these prophets and apostles claim to work spectacular miracles, you know, like killing people or raising the dead. And they give new revelations the church needs to bring heaven to earth. There's a, a buzz phrase there in the movement. Um, these are revelations that they would say they receive during personal visits they've had from angels or trips to heaven. And they are usually revelations about various uh, spiritual warfare strategies or new practices that all Christians need to adopt so they can um, gain supernatural powers and bring God's kingdom to earth with those powers. Um, but the most important belief that defines this movement is the belief that these prophets and apostles must hold formal authoritative offices in governing the church. They insist on that. So these are, these are offices like pastors or elders, except the difference is that apostles and prophets have much greater authority than just pastors or elders because a pastor or elder typically will govern in one church, whereas a NAR apostle or prophet often governs multiple churches. Sometimes, so this would, be, this would be church with a capital C, you know, authority. Right, well, authority. right. and so they wouldn't say, they usually wouldn't say, you know, an apostle has authority over the entire universal church, but one okay. apostle, for instance, like Cheon, He's an apostle over a network of 25,000 churches and organizations in 65 nations. So, and he, he'll team up with a prophet. And so you can see the type of authority these people claim to have. And in addition to that, the pastors and elders are expected to submit to them. So they're the highest offices in church governance. And um, often they'll claim their authority even extends outside the church, into the workplaces, the cities, the nations. So, so that also is a, is a very far-reaching authority. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the, the core here, like you said, is this authority? Would you say the authority thing is, I don't know if, it, if the right word is non-negotiable, because the, the way you articulated that, it makes, me seem, it makes it seem that all of these things are sort of non-negotiable, but, but the authority thing you would put at the, at the top? Well, Right, the offices. So, okay. so that's what separates this apart from more traditional Pentecostals and Charismatics. They would say that there are people today with the gifts of like prophecy or the gifts of apostleship, mm -hmm. but these are not authoritative offices that they traditionally believe these people have held. In the, in the NAR, they would say they must hold authoritative offices governing the church. And, and they insist on that. So that's what sets the NAR apart from, you know, historical Pentecostal charismatic churches. Now, this may sound like a kind of obvious, maybe even a dumb question, but who grants them this authority? I mean, who grants this authority at the highest levels? Well, they would say that, that they are given the gift of, you know, being a prophet or an apostle from God, of course, um, but that that is that must be recognized by those around them. And so often apostles and prophets will um, kind of formally recognize each other during a ceremony or, or something, something like that. Boy, that <laughs> that's kind of convenient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that, that just, again, I don't know what any other, you know, better way to put it, but that just sounds like a, a good old boy network, you know, that, uh, 
I got this revelation that I recognize you and you and you over there in the, in the comfy chair, you know I mean? It just, that just doesn't sound right. <laughs> right. And, and, and other people, other Christians are expected to recognize their authority or be outside of God's will. And, and that's seen as kind of a dangerous place to be because you're outside of God's blessing. You're outside of his will. Um, so, so yes. So, so Christians in a city are expected to recognize who the apostles are in their city and come under their authority. All right. And, and okay, let's just take, you know, city X. Okay. So Christians in the city are supposed to recognize the authority of the apostles. Now, are there apostles in the, the local bodies or when you say recognize the authority of the apostles, that's, that's a level up. Is well, it both or which one? So about 3 million people in the United States attend churches that are formally governed by apostles and prophets. And these are churches that have joined an apostolic network. And therefore, they're formally under the authority of, of these apostles and prophets. In addition to that, though, you, would ha- you have many millions more in the U.S. who attend Pentecostal and Charismatic churches where these teachings have gained a significant foothold in varying degrees. And so within these churches, you will have often you will have pastors of Pentecostal Charismatic churches who are bringing in uh, well-known apostles like Bill Johnson inviting them to speak at their church. They're studying their books. They're doing small group studies on their materials. And, um, and then many people attending Pentecostal charismatic churches or even just regular non-denominational churches will, um, will follow these apostles and prophets uh, through their, their organizations online. So that, okay, that makes it sound like, oh, okay, we have a pastor. Let's just, you know, again, City X pastor of a Pentecostal church that's not officially affiliated with, you know, one of these networks invites this apostle in. And it it sounds to me like the recognition that you referred to, you know, people need to recognize the authority of these apostles. It it sounds like this is the way it happens. We invite the apostle in, you know, he's a likable guy, or we are somehow either convinced he is an apostle, or we we just want this guy to like us. So we're going to say he's an apostle. And then we tell our congregations as leaders, hey, look over there. That's an apostle, you know, and, and, and we need to recognize his authority. And, that, and then it just sort of is. Is that kind that's of an true. oversimplification? I mean, some, or? No, that's true. Some churches will, they formally join apostolic networks. So it's in a formal alignment under them. And, and these churches will contribute a part of their church's budget, usually to that apostle. Um, but you're right. In other churches that are part of Pentecostal denominations, like, say, the Assemblies of God, the Assemblies of God officially has published documents against NAR teachings. And they've lost many churches to this movement. But nevertheless, many pastors of Assemblies of God churches have brought these teachings into their churches in, in the way you described. Again, that, that is suspiciously convenient. <laughs> Boy. You know, I, and I, I know a little bit about the AG because I have friends in the AG, and including one that was a, a top executive. And and again, that that person has just more or less told me, you know, the AG is just this hodgepodge. You know, you you know, we have the, these commonalities, and you know, you actually go to one, it could be like a Lutheran church. You go to another, and they're climbing the walls. You know, so I could see where there's so much independence there. I could see you know, what you just said, that some would just sort of ignore, you know, what the denomination has said about this and 
go off on their merry way and, you know, have people in and then make these, give these endorsements. Um, cause that's just what it, it if the recognition, you know, thing sounds to me like just a, an endorsement for, you know, whatever reason, uh, good, bad, you know, self-interested or whatever. Again, I, I hope you can tell, I, I just have a, I have a real suspicion of, of high handed authority and I, I don't come from a, a charismatic background. It's just, I don't know why I have that, but I just do. It's just, this just smells like that, you know, in a, in a, and I don't want to be too simplistic here, but, or, or unnecessarily unkind. And by the way, in your book, I think you guys make a real effort to not be unkind, um, to, to try to be fair with, you know, people, you know, in this movement. But again, I'm the, I'm the outsider and it just, you know, it just doesn't look good to me. Let, Let's go into the second thing I really want to ask you in our time. And you've, you've sort of alluded to this already. This is a big question I have because I know people in a number of these groups under these labels. Okay, so what is the difference between Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement, the vineyard movement, the signs and wonders movement, and the new apostolic reformation? I, I, I know there's some overlap somewhere with I guess all of these groups, but there's got to be sort of fundamental differences as well. Because I know people who are, you know, they would be attached to the Vineyard Movement, and they've just told me, like, boy, you know, you know, the New Apostolic Reformation thing. We're just really not into that. We don't, you know, we don't. We have a, we have a pretty low view of that, and so you know, it makes me wonder. Well, how would how would I articulate a difference there? What, so what's the difference here? What separates these things? Okay. So, so first of all, Pentecostals attend churches that are part of classical Pentecostal denominations. Like I mentioned, the Assemblies of God is the largest Pentecostal denomination. Um, and these denominations, these churches emphasize the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, of course, like speaking in tongues and, and prophesying. But these are churches that are part of a denomination. Whereas in the charismatic movement, you have charismatics are people who attend non-Pentecostal churches. So they may be in mainline churches, mainline denominations, or in independent charismatic churches. And they also emphasize the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. But, but they're not part of a denomination, a Pentecostal denomination. Mm-hmm. Okay. The vineyard so like, move—oh, go ahead— uh, I was going to say, like, I've heard, you know, like charismatic Catholic or charismatic, you know, fill in the, you know, mm-hmm. one's the adjective, the other's the noun. So that's what you're talking about. There. Right, right. That's okay. where people within those uh, denominations or, or churches that are traditionally not Pentecostals, they still embrace uh, these Pentecostal type beliefs. Okay. Uh, charismania, you mentioned. As I understand it, that's a term that's been used by uh, some critics of the charismatic movement to describe, you know, some of the craziness that that takes place in charismatic churches, you know, like the barking, making animal noises, um, you know, that rolling on the ground, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, The Vineyard Movement is a denomination. And so its beliefs are essentially charismatic, but it's a denomination. It has about 1,500 churches worldwide. It was started, of course, in the you know late 70s, 80s, and John Wimber was a very influential early leader in that movement. And the interesting thing is John Wimber uh, gave the NAR prophets a, a prominent platform 
early on in the vineyard movement, but then he ended up parting ways with the prophets. He believed they were not being provided with adequate accountability and there was a falling out. And he ended up apologizing for promoting these prophets and distancing himself uh, from them. So, so that's, that's where the vineyard uh, split ways. However, I should say that um, NAR beliefs and practices have entered um, some vineyard churches, again, in varying degrees. You can find supernatural schools of ministry, which are essentially, that's an NAR practice. Uh, you can find those in some vineyard churches. And, and just like all Pentecostal charismatic churches, pretty much NAR teachings have infiltrated pretty much all Pentecostal and charismatic churches, but in varying degrees. Mm. So, and then you have the signs and wonders movement you mentioned. Uh, that was a term that was used, especially in the 80s and 90s, to describe churches like the vineyard churches that emphasize the importance of miraculous signs and wonders uh, for church growth and just for, you know, the Christian experience. And then to the NAR, what we've been talking about, again, the distinctive belief in NAR is that the, there are governing offices of prophets and apostles, these authoritative governing offices. Okay, so when you say NAR beliefs and practices are infiltrating okay, vineyard churches, well, really, let's just say any church, you know, a, a whole, you have a whole specter here, but New Apostolic Reformation beliefs are and practices are infiltrating churches. What are those beliefs and practices? So it would be things like this apostolic authority doctrine, right? Well, specifically, specifically, what I was I was thinking of with the Vineyard churches is there's there's something called supernatural schools of ministry. Okay. Uh, Bethel, have you heard of Bethel Reading? Uh, Bill I, Johnson. I've, I've heard of of that, and I've heard of his name, but I. I couldn't okay. tell you what he looked like. You know, I, he's he's the most influential apostle in this movement uh, currently in the in North America, maybe the world. He's extremely influential. Bethel music that's coming out of his church is being played in churches across America every Sunday morning. Just your typical non-denominational, non-charismatic churches, even the you know, hugely popular music coming out of there. And um, he has something called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which. Mm-hmm which uh, has something like a $7 million, you know, takes in $7 million in tuition a year, uh, some, something like 1,900 students, full-time students who go there to learn to work miracles. And it's a very influential school. And so other churches throughout the nation and the world even have been starting starting supernatural schools of ministry where they go to learn how to work miracles, like prophesying, raising the dead, healing people. And so that's a distinctive practice in this movement, the idea that, that you can teach people how to work miracles. And the idea is that the apostles and prophets in this movement are revealing these new practices and new truths that will enable all Christians to learn to, to work miracles, to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so that's one distinctive practice, these supernatural schools of ministry. You also have the 24-7 prayer rooms that have been popularized by Mike Bickle's International House of Prayer. Where, where people will sign up for shifts and take part in nonstop around the clock prayer seven days a week uh, in, in prayer rooms in their communities. Uh, you have healing rooms uh, where people go to receive uh, prayer for physical healing um, that, 
that uh, an organization uh, under Cal Pierce, he's an apostle in this movement. He's popularized, popularized these healing rooms and communities throughout the nation. You have prayer and fasting events that are being held in large arenas in cities, often organized by the prophet uh, Lou Engel of The Call. He's organizing a big event in Washington, D.C., actually. Uh, I believe it's next month. Another big prayer and fasting event. And uh, partnering with the National Day of Prayer for that in a lot of organizations. And so, so, so looking for these type of practices, there's something called SOZO, which is being popularized, popularized in this movement. It's a type of uh, ministry that the movement's prophets do where they help people kind of uncover the root cause of their, their emotional problems or physical problems and through, through prophetic words and, and pray for that person's healing. So that's happening in these healing rooms. It's called SOZO, S-O-Z-O. Um, treasure hunting is another very popular practice in this movement. This is where teams of five or six people will pray and ask God to give them clues that will lead them to an individual in their community. Like they might be at a Walmart and they might pray and ask God to give them some clues about a person. And they'll, they'll think God gave them a clue to look for somebody with red hair who is wearing a, you know, a blue shirt and has a, and walking on crutches. And so they'll look for that person and then they'll go up to that person and ask if they can pray, pray for them. And they use that as a form of prophetic evangelism. Mm-hmm. That's another practice that's distinctive to this movement. All right, I'm sure you get this this question. It's like, okay, Holly, you know what what's wrong with a 24 seven prayer room? What's wrong with a, at least in theory, with you know coming up with an idea of you know tracking somebody down to pray over them? Um, what's wrong with prayer and fasting events? You know, so what what do you say? Um, right, of course, right. Of course, nothing is wrong with if people want you know prayer is is great. And if people want to engage in 24 seven prayer rooms, um, that's a great thing. We wouldn't critique that, but, um, but what lies behind these practices is the idea that the prophets and apostles in this movement have revealed these practices as new strategies that the church worldwide needs to adopt and take part in, in order to bring God's kingdom to earth. And All right. specific- well, let, let's drill okay. down there. Okay. Well, Holly, wouldn't, wouldn't God want these events to be held? Wouldn't God be behind this? You know, would you deny or affirm that? Or, or how would you talk about that? Well, I, I would say that, that God would, would not be behind um, false teaching that is <laughs> promoting um, people who, who claim to be apostles and prophets. Right. In, in the way people in this movement do. And, and you have to realize at these prayer and fasting events, it's not just prayer and fasting. You have all kinds of distinctive NAR practices that are taking place at these events, NAR leaders who are being brought in to do the teaching. And so a lot of Christians will take part in these events, not realizing that they're actually organized by NAR leaders. And, so you're, you're, and, you're, you're saying they're, there's, they're basically recruitment tools as well. 
Is that right. what you're saying? Okay. Right, definitely. And in these 24-7 prayer rooms, you know, Mike Bickle teaches that one purpose of these 24-7 prayer rooms is that in the end time, they will be Christians in these prayer rooms throughout the world will be calling down God's plagues that are described in the book of Revelation mm-hmm. um, on, on the unbelievers all at the same time and all the prayer rooms simultaneously calling down the same plagues <laughs> on on non-believers and so so there's a lot more that's that's going on here than just this is not and, and the type of prayer also is not your typical petitionary prayer god we ask will you please do this will you please do that it's a nar style of prayer where people are are prophetically declaring that god will do this or will do that do you think that these are successful because you know, again, I hate to put it this way, but I will. Normal churches <laughs> aren't doing these things. I do think that that it's um, yes that that it could be possible that that it's always possible that where where churches are neglecting certain teachings, that then then groups that are in error will come in and capitalize on that. I that seems to be standard, even with cults you know, of Christianity, I, I think that that they do the same thing. They'll find a teaching that's being neglected in many churches and then go, oh, look, they're not teaching that. The, you know, therefore, you should come over here and do what we're doing. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think I think that's true. So you have, you know, you, you could have a lot of Christians out there that, boy, you know, I don't, I don't ever remember our church asking its people to fast or we never really have prayer meetings or we never really do, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, fill in the blank and they're hungry for that. And so when they, when they hear about something like this or a friend tells them they go. And again, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I'm again, more or less for the sake of our audience here, that, you know, that, that hunger to do these things and e- even the idea of, of organizing these things isn't, isn't a bad thing, but when you go, you're going to be exposed to to ideas that really are scripturally aberrant, and and that's the concern, correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. You know, because I've you know you mentioned this International House of Prayer thing. I've heard of that. Um, you know, I don't. I can't say I I know really if anybody's that I know is specifically in, involved in that, but I could see again where you know Christians want to do things you know, to serve the Lord, they might have had these experiences or, you know, at least the, you know, these disciplines, these practices, you know, one part of their Christian life and it's been years, you know, since they saw this or that or participated in something like that. So it, it doesn't surprise me there's a receptive audience. Okay. To the, you know, <laughs> again, using a, probably not the best term, but it kind of like a gateway drug, <laughs> you, know, you, you get them in the door, you get them to the location with this and then, that it, it's not bait and switch, you know, what, what they went to do there happens, but then this other stuff sort of gloms onto it. And then they, you know, they, Oh, this was a great idea. You know, the, the, who organized this? Oh, apostle so-and-so it was his idea. Wow. Boy, he must be a great guy. And, you know, then, then you start hearing about the apostolic authority thing. And I, I mean, it's not hard for me to see how this works, you know, and how, how legitimate things can be used as, carrots, you know, dangling the carrot before the, uh, before the, the, the Christian that wants that carrot and time goes by and you get exposed to some things that really are, you know, questionable. 
Well, and so I, I would just, say, I would say even, even, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is terms have been redefined. So when in the NAR, when they talk about prayer, often what they're talking about, again, is not we're asking God to do this or that, or it's, it's, we are declaring that God will do this or that. And the words have creative power. And, um, and so it's, it's a different thing. It's not a traditional view of prayer. How and, is that articulated? You know, how, how, how is that explained? Cause I'm sure NAR leadership or people who are, you know, have been exposed to this for quite a, quite a long time. Somebody's going to ask them, well, why would I, why would I say declare? I mean, what, what is this declaring thing? Like how, how can I declare something that God's going to do? Like how, how do they explain that? Like what, what's the rationale for that? Well, uh, you know, Peter Wagner talks about this different type of prayer. He, it's called warfare prayer. It's often called warfare prayer. And it, it's just described that there are different types of prayer and that, um, and that some prayer is petitionary, but some, some prayer is, is, is actually, or they call it apostolic prayers. There's other different terms, prophetic decrees, prophetic proclamations. And, they will say that that these are these are times when something more is needed, you know, and that and that God that God has actually uh, given believers the authority to make these these type of proclamations. So every believer is a is a prophet in this sense. Well, no. So so that. <laughs> Because that would it's, be trading their authority or somebody's authority. I mean, if you right, if so you apostles and prophets are are seen usually as having more authority, and so that's why they will call proclamations. They make maybe apostolic or prophetic proclamations, um, but like, individuals like papal bulls or as opposed to some <laughs> other. No, really, you know, because there, there's special there's a special label that goes on statements that are intended by the faithful to be understood as the Pope speaking ex cathedra as opposed to the, the Pope just sort of sounding off on something. Right, right. And whereas individual believers are seen as having authority to make proclamations, but those might be more proclamations like like uh, in their own life. Like, you know, I, I'm going to decree that, you know, my, my son will stop using drugs or, you know, <laughs> things that, that pertain more to them individually, where if it's something that would be for a city or a nation or something like that, usually that would come from like an apostle or a prophet and their followers would agree and, and decree that with them. So what happens when failure occurs? Okay, I, I decree that my son or daughter is going to stop using drugs and then they don't. How, how is failure processed? So it's these things are unfalsifiable. That's sure. it, it always comes down to there's always some reason why it didn't work. It didn't take. And, um, and it's never God. So it must be you. Right. So you were the only two people involved, you know, <laughs> it, I mean, so for instance, see Peter Wagner, one of the influential leaders in this movement who, toined, who coined the term new apostolic reformation. He, he basically, uh, he said, well, you know, one reason why we've been issuing all these decrees and they haven't worked is because we didn't realize the importance of another type of apostle we never knew about before. This type of apostle is called a workplace apostle. And workplace apostles have authority 
over the sectors of society, society like media, government, education. So now that we're recognizing these apostles who, whose spheres of authority are in the workplace, now they can issue these decrees that are in their sphere of authority. And now we'll finally have the transformation of our cities and nations. This is why it hasn't happened yet. So there's always a new revelation that comes along that explains why so far it hasn't been working. Yeah, to, to me that, you know, we need some kind of sound effect, you know, because I'm rolling my eyes right now. It just, you know, that, that, that sounds to me like, well, the average person in the pew really doesn't have, you know, any connection to God. We, we, need, this, we need this networked hierarchy for, for God to pay attention. I, I, again, that, that's just me processing what, what you just said. And, you know, right. and- I, I just don't see how people think that that's coherent or, to be more blunt, put up with that. I mean, is it biblical illiteracy, or, or I mean, what is it? Because that, if 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 I'm if I'm jumping through all these hoops that you're telling me I need to jump through, and I'm I'm at these activities, I'm really making an effort, and and the effort's sincere, and and then you know we have the, the these things that don't happen. Well, the reason they don't happen is because we need a few more layers between you and God. Th- that just strikes me as it should be self evidently absurd, but apparently it's not. Right. And, and the ironic thing is in this movement, they will say, actually, they're the only the only churches that truly follow the priesthood of all believers that that, you know, they uh, they allow people to have this direct access with God that that the other denominations and churches haven't allowed. But you're right. It uh, really it's the apostles and prophets who have the authority and power. And so right. it's, it's your, kind your of... Your priesthood is nothing without those other people. Right, right. That's, that's just a shame. I mean, that really is just a shame. Um, you, you mentioned you had friends. When you when you started getting into this, okay, you, you discovered you had friends that were in churches that were either part of these networks or, or you know, dabbling with, with this or that. What did you do? I mean, what, what and what would you do today? I mean, I, I'm sure there's probably a difference there. What did you do then? What would you do today? But that's that's a springboard into how how do you gently but honestly talk to someone who's really hooked into this uh, in a helpful way? Right, and I'll just mention in our book, God Super Apostles, we actually have an one entire appendix that addresses that question in, in great length in case people want to hear more on that. But um, first, um, I would say it's really important to clarify what somebody actually believes, because some a lot of people might be attending these churches and not even actually know what the leaders of the churches are teaching. Right. And they might they might hear them mention an apostle or a prophet and just think they're talking about this in more of a standard Pentecostal charismatic way and not and not know that they're actually seeing something much more uh, than that. And so so to really clarify what they believe and that they understand what the the leaders of of their church or organization are teaching, um, and then what you know what I really did and and what I think is people really need to do next is to ask people who are getting caught up in this movement to support their beliefs from scripture, and because leaders of this movement will say that scripture is is the highest authority that we should all appeal to. And, uh, of course, they approach scripture much differently, and that's a different topic of discussion, but they will say it's our highest authority. And so to really ask someone to support their beliefs from scripture, and you have to keep gently 
coming back to that. And, and what I saw with, with people I knew is over time, if you keep challenging them with scripture gently and to support their beliefs from scripture, it may not seem like uh, you're getting through it all, but, but suddenly uh, there start to be some, a little bit of cracks in, in the worldview and, and they start seeing where it falls apart. And um, so I have seen people leave this movement and um, have their eyes opened, uh, but it takes time <laughs> and a, a, a lot of patience with them and a lot of prayer. And it's very important to be gentle and kind because, especially because leaders in this movement will often demonize critics of this movement, literally. They will say that people who oppose this movement are under the influence of one of the highest ranking demonic principalities that they call the corporate spirit of religion. And if you oppose this movement, if you question leaders in this movement, they'll say you have a Jezebel spirit, you're a Pharisee, you're a legalist. There, I mean, there's just a, a full list of names of, of what they will call people who criticize their teachings. And so people in this movement um, have been taught to anticipate that people who oppose this movement are, are you know, mean mm -hmm. people. <laughs> and so it's yeah. very important if you just are gentle and kind with them, that alone might, might cause them to start questioning the other things their, their leaders have told them if, if you're not acting in the way that their leaders said you would act. Hmm. And then, what? you know, that's for pastors or someone who has a platform. We really urge, Doug and I urge these people to use their platform you know, like you are to warn people about this movement and, and the encroachment of our teachings in their churches. Um, and so it's really important that church leaders learn about this movement themselves and, and familiarize themselves with, you know, the key in our teachings and our interpretations of scripture, uh, that are used to support those teachings. Um, so, um, that's, that's something we really, because this movement is so huge. It's worldwide. It's in every city and town. And it's flying under the radar, and and that wouldn't be happening if more uh, pastors and church leaders were using their platforms to warn their people. Is it intentionally politically connected? Uh, uh, now here's here's why I asked this. I don't know if you've read this book, but a few years ago I read um, Jeff Charlotte's book called The Family. Um, Charlotte, you know, is on the political left. You know, which I'm not a lefty, but I thought he did a it was a good book. I mean, he, he he put his cards on the table, so you knew kind of where he was at at, at any given point. But this this thing called the family that that really, again, was a it, it's something that has grown out of out of evangelicalism and is really connected to what could uh, legitimately be called the religious right, as opposed to pejoratively called the religious right. So I'm wondering if NAR has uh, some sort of political intentionality to it well there is a prophecy a revelation that has been given to some nar prophets known as the seven mountain mandate and this is a revelation or a strategy they believe god has revealed to the church in the end times and that's that apostles are supposed to take control of the uh, seven most influential uh, sectors of society like education media the arts uh, government and that apostles are supposed to cast out the demons that rule over these institutions and then rise up to the top. And then that's how they can bring God's kingdom to earth. And um, 
And so, and they believe government is like the prize because government makes the laws. So, mm. so they do want to see apostles rise up, you know, to top, top positions in government. But the truth is that um, most NAR leaders are not directly involved in politics. Their, their real influence, I think, comes from their perceived spiritual authority. Since they're viewed as God's anointed spokespeople, you know, their, their followers will listen to them when they say that you should vote for this or that candidate or you should vote this or that way. And um, some prominent NAR prophets endorsed uh, Donald Trump for president prior to his election. And uh, so, so they do use their, their authority to influence how their, their followers vote. And I think that's where their real political influence comes. But there have been certain uh, politicians like Sarah Palin and Rick Perry, uh, governors who uh, have had ties to our leaders in the past. Mm-hmm. So if, if, I, if I went up to somebody and asked, you know, tr- trying not to come across cynically, but Hey, why isn't the seven mountain mandate in the Great Commission? Like the Great Commission just seems so simple. You know, you you bring people to Christ, and they get changed hearts, and then you know they're supposed to repeat the process. And you know, they the, the kingdom of God is advanced when when people are redeemed and they start imaging God. They start they start being like Jesus in every place and circumstance where they're at to change other hearts and minds. What I don't, I'm not reading the seven mountains in there. You know, it, well, why, why isn't that, one of the seven mountains like sacrifice or unselfishness or, right. you know, laying down your, I mean, the stuff the apostles did, I mean, good grief. You know, why, why, why don't we have the seven mountains be that stuff, you know, willing to suffer uh, again? I, well, what, the would, seven what would somebody is, say to me? I have a Jezebel spirit. Is that the quick answer? Or, <laughs> I mean, right. Well, the seven mountain mandate is a new, seen as a new truth that that God continues to reveal new truths, and these are seen as strategies. And so, it's a strategy to fulfill the Great Commission. They would say it's not, it's not directly found in Scripture because it's a new, it's a new truth, and. Um, and so, and they would also say that one mistake we've made is we've, we've always seen the Great Commission as a commission to, to make disciples of individuals. But as Peter, Peter Wagner would say, no, it's the mandate is to make disciples of nations. And, um, and so that involves, you know, taking socio-political control of entire nations. And that's the way the Great Commission is really supposed to be fulfilled. Boy, that's... That's bad exegesis. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but I guess that answer would make sense, you know, in in their context. Um, I, so I'd have to work a little bit harder to, to be called a Jezebel spirit. <laughs> oh man! No, I think I think by by doing this podcast, you probably already qualify. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'm, I've been called a Jesuit, and I'm working on becoming a member of the of the Illuminati, so we can add this to the list. <laughs> And I do want to um, mention that this, they do say the seven mountain mandate is, is uh, they kind of compare it to Israel's mandate to conquer seven nations before it can enter the promised land that was found in Deuteronomy 7.1. Um, and so, so they believe that prophets receive prophetic illumination into certain passages of scripture like that one, and that they're able to see an understanding of a certain verse that nobody in the church has ever seen in church history 
you know, the light goes on for them. And then that's like a new truth that they bring to the church. So it does, they would say have biblical precedent, but it's, it's a new, it's a new, uh, you know, take on a verse that nobody's ever seen before until God has now revealed it to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you, you, you expect to run into elite knowledge at some point, cause that's usually how these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, right. what, what happens when apostles disagree? Well, the apostles, so, so the new apostolic reformation, like we said, it's a movement, it's not a formal organization. And so these are all independent churches and organizations led by apostles, different apostles and prophets. They'll often network together for specific causes and events, but, uh, because they are, it's not a formal denomination or organization, uh, they're free to disagree with each other. Um, you know, that's, uh, that now I, you often don't see that publicly. I do know they do privately because I've had meetings with leaders of this movement who privately have told like myself and Doug, well, I don't agree with this apostle over there about that, but they don't say that publicly often. The most- how, how can they honestly then validate the other, the other person's apostolic standing then if this is, if they're getting new revelation, new insight from God, how, how is that coherent? I mean, how, how does that work? Well, first of all, much of, much of the teachings in this movement are not coherent and that's, that's what we try to show in our books. But, um, pardon me for assuming coherence. It's important. It's important to understand that, that they believe that apostles and prophets can make mistakes and still be true. They believe a prophet can be a true prophet of God and still make mistakes when they prophesy and that does not disqualify them from being a true prophet of God. That's a very common teaching in this movement. So if if they're the same as the old prophets, you know, how, how does that work? Because I I don't really see those making mistakes a lot. This isn't So they'll, they'll grant that they have authority similar to like the old Testament prophets, but they don't believe they're held to the same, um, the same standards of accuracy as the Old Testament prophets were. So, well, so that's how they do that. They'll, they'll point to 1 Corinthians 14, 29, where, where Paul says, let two or three prophets speak. And I'm paraphrasing something like, let the others judge what they said. And they'll say, see, that shows that prophets since the New Testament times can be mistaken because people are responsible for listening to what they say and, and judging it. Uh, which sounds good, but but then on the with the other hand, they'll say, yeah, but they have the same level of authority as the Old Testament prophets do. Uh, so so they want it both ways. Mm-hmm. All right, this this may seem like a real foolish question here, but what role does biblical scholarship play in any of this? And what I mean by that is, is any effort made to defend these ideas? using the, the tools of biblical scholarship. Cause I, I can't believe that. I mean, Wimber, I mean, I, I know he was on the faculty or was it at Fuller or something, or I don't know what he taught, but um, yeah, I've got to believe that, that somebody, you know, has some kind of credentials here in, in some way. I, is that a, is that, you know, a meaningful some, part of this or. There are some people who have, have with some academic credentials who have tried to put forth a defense of, of some of these teachings like Michael Brown or uh, John Deere, or I mean, I'm sorry, John, Deere, John uh, 
Wait, uh, oh, now I'm blinking. Is it is Jack Deere? Jack Deere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jack Deere out of, uh, he came out of Dallas Theological Seminary. And, um, would, would, would he really be, I mean, would, would he and Michael, I mean, I know Michael Brown, he's an old Testament guy. Um, would, would they really be NAR or are they defending like spiritual gifts? Cause I, I remember I wasn't at Dallas when deer was there, but he was, he was there just before I spent two years at Dallas before going to grad school. And I remember him and, uh, well, I can't remember the other guy's name, but the, the focus really seemed to be trying to move away from cessationism, you know, to being, to being open to the operation of spiritual gifts, which would, by your definition, would be a lot wider than NAR. So what, where's the overlap there? Jack Deere went beyond that. Uh, he, in one of his books, uh, maybe the gift, something about prophecy, I, um, I'm, it's escaping me the exact title now, but he goes beyond that to, to promoting like the office office of prophet, I believe. And one thing is both Jack, Jack uh, John Deere, I'm sorry, and Michael Brown have um, taught in the Wagner Leadership Institute. I believe both of them have, which is uh, an institute created by C. Peter Wagner to specifically to train up uh, leaders for the new apostolic reformation. And, um, so, okay. So what, yeah, I, I don't want to get Wagner and Wimber crossed up here. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wagner. Wimber was, yeah, Wimber was the one that, that left this stuff later, you know, later distanced himself from them. And, and Wagner's role is what? See, Peter Wagner was, it was, uh, he was at Fuller Seminary for about 30 years and he was, he started introducing the idea of present day apostles and prophets to the larger church. He brought a lot of church leaders to Fuller for a big symposium on this. And he really developed a lot of the theology of the movement, wrote a number of books about apostles and prophets today. And um, really gave a lot of credibility to the movement because of his association with Fuller. And he's one of the most influential apostles in this movement. He died fairly recently. Um, but he, he was a, he's one of the most recognized leaders in the movement. Mm-hmm. So, and so all right, he back, started back what's to, essentially a seminary. Brown. Yeah. So he started what was essentially a seminary for the NAR, although I use the term seminary very loosely because it like taught people to work miracles and things like that and not, you know, your normal biblical scholarship. But um, he called the Wagner Leadership Institute, which both Michael Brown and uh, sorry, Jack Deere have both uh, taught at that that institute in the past, to my knowledge. How old is that institute? So I'm I'm losing Wagner chronologically here. Yeah, like '80s or something, or uh, well, it's it's ongoing. It's it's uh, has a presence presence today in multiple countries. The Wagner Leadership Institute. Um, Wagner started it in. I, I was trying to find really quickly. There's a website. Uh, actually now it's titled the website it's called Wagner University interestingly you can go to the website wagner.university and and read about that there you know Mike seems I don't, I don't know Jack Deere but Mike seems I mean he would certainly be on the in the charismatic orientation but he doesn't again I, it's not like I've read his all his books I've, I've been on his show a couple times and I've you know chatted with him in the email and he's never he's never pushed any of, of of what I would call based on our discussion here some of the darker 
mm-hmm. uh, elements of this. So it has me wondering where where what he's I, at. Where like it is, and I know it's a moving target. I mean, I can already right. tell it's a moving target. But I've you know, read what, recently, what you thought one at one point might be different than what you think now, and you know, right. So, on. so first of all, it looks like the institute, the Wagner Leadership Institute, started in '98. But um, from what I understand, what I've read recently by Michael Brown. Uh, he seems to he defends uh, people who I would call leaders of this movement, and he he will kind of say it's not really a movement; it doesn't really exist. It's it's a figment of people's imagination, and that's kind of the approach that he's taken. That people have mischaracterized the leaders of this movement, and it's not really as bad as people are saying. People like myself, um, it's not what we're saying it is, and. So I'm a little concerned with how I, I know that Michael Brown's, you know, he has a reputation as like you, like you say, like you just shared as, as being more charismatic and, um, and, but he, he has been a real defender of the leaders of this movement. And, um, and that's concerned me a bit because I think by saying that this is, is not really a movement and people are just making more out of it than it is. And it's, uh, that, that's really concerning to me. Do you think, um, okay, how would we define movement? Is, is movement a numbers question? Is it a networking question? In other words, like a, setting the numbers aside, you, you, you have a group of like-minded insta- you know, churches that, that are just really well networked. I mean, they've really you know, sort of learned how to do this well. So is, is that what a movement is? Is it networking? Is it numbers? Is it both? Is it something else? I mean, what? What's the criteria? What are the criteria for movement? Certainly has the numbers, you know, millions of people worldwide. And I didn't mention this earlier, but in the global South, this movement is, according to church growth researchers at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, this movement is is responsible for much of the explosive church growth taking place in Africa, Asia, Latin America. It's part of the fastest growing segment of uh, non-Catholic Christianity worldwide. It's called the independent segment. It has about 369 million participants. So this is a huge movement recognized by sociologists, church growth researchers. And in our book, we, when we use movement, we, use, we are defining people who share the belief in uh, the present-day governing offices of apostle and prophet. And they certainly do network together, uh, many of them you know, join in networks. But as I mentioned before, this, they're not formally uh, connected with one another. It's kind of loose networks where they kind of team up for specific causes and purposes. I have a, okay, this question will be more or less about your impression because I, I, I don't imagine you can actually answer this uh, with any kind of data. But, okay, explosive church growth you know, when when I hear that, I always ask myself, "Well, what does that mean? Are those are those people like genuinely being one to the Lord, or is it people coming out of the woodwork going to a building or a place on a on a weekly or mostly weekly basis for some you know ostensibly positive reason? In other words, you know, we we have we have big churches that that you know we can point to now that have grown you know at explosive rates, but you know, to be to put it bluntly, you, you just wonder if any of the people are are believers. Do they really understand the gospel? You know, or or is it is it replacing a sense of community for them? Do they like the coffee? You know, do they like this this you know you know this support group that that happens to meet there? I mean, there's there could be all sorts of reasons why a church grows numerically, 
only one of which is actually conversion. Um, what, what's your impression of what, what goes on, you know, in, in these, in these church growth statistics? You know, that's, that's the question. I, you know, like you said, I don't know if I could, <laughs> other than knowing people's hearts, you know, I don't know how, how to address people that. You know, people you know that have been in this. I mean, I, I imagine they're, you, you'd look at them and say, yep, they, they really understand the gospel. They're a genuine believer. Um, you know, again, we're not asking them to be theologians, but they, you know, they know the Lord and, you know, they have positive intentions here. Um, you know, I, I imagine a lot of it could, could be that, that oh, there's something exciting going on over here in building A. My church meets at building B and I'm going to go over to building A because there's something going on there. Um, whereas they don't have the same perception. You know, there's, there's always this perception problem involved in this. And, and so the, the one church grows, the other one dwindles. I mean, it, have you come across that, like with any of the people you, you've met that sort of gravitate from from something else to this? Or was it the ones you know, the, their individual churches essentially were assimilated into this? Well, first, first I'd say, you know, I do have a question of whether um, some people in this movement do understand the gospel, mm -hmm. uh, the gospel of, you know, salvation from sin, um, because in this movement, the, that's that's often downplayed. And what's really emphasized is the teaching about how to gain supernatural miraculous power. You know, that that's really what becomes the emphasis. And often you hear very little about the gospel of salvation from sin. And um, so, so I do have a question of, first of all, you know, if people really are understanding the gospel. And there also has been a question that people have raised of, of where where is the church growth coming from? Are churches in this movement simply drawing people from other more conservative churches? That's probably largely the case. You know, they're coming from the Baptist churches and the more conservative churches over to the the NAR churches. And that's that's where a lot of I mean, you can see uh, recently, I I visited the International House of Prayer in Kansas City on a Sunday morning for their church service. Meanwhile, the church down the street is completely empty, just down the street, you know. So, um, so. What did, what did you find when you went to the the International House of Prayer for their service? It was a very dynamic service. The music was very dynamic, uh, you know, quality music, um, a large bookstore and, and resources that were being sold right there uh, in the um, – you know, in the sanctuary, the teaching that day, they had a guest speaker and he was encouraging people to take part in an evangelistic kind of uh, crusade for the city and kind of getting people excited, excited and, and taking part in that. I did not hear too much explicitly, uh, too much explicit NAR teaching that morning. I heard a couple of things that only people that really know the NAR movement would have picked up on uh, references, you know, kind of veiled or vague references to mm -hmm. uh, certain our prophets that that most people wouldn't pick up on. So would, would Mike you Nicole view, wasn't wasn't speaking that morning. Do you know anything about Calvary Chapel? You know the Calvary Chapel. Yeah, a little bit. Because mm -hmm. they they seem like a bit of an antidote to this. You know, right, mm -hmm. wrong. I mean, because they they emphasize you know verse by verse exposition, which is what I grew up with, and and to me it's just been kind of shocking that that you could 
found a movement that would explode based upon this simple idea that I thought like everybody doesn't everybody like know this. And apparently, you know, there's a lot of churches, you know, that have never heard of this idea before, <laughs> you know, like it was something new. So they, they're open to, you know, again, the, the spiritual gifts and whatnot. Um, but they really focus on the text of scripture. So is my perception on target there? Cause it, it just seems, you know, <laughs> that would be a place where you'd go to learn something and you'd, and you'd still, you'd still hear talk about, you know, well, God can do X, Y, or Z today, you know, if, if God wants to, but you're obviously not going to hear this apostolic authority talk, you know, any, anything right. like that. Well, the, um, the, 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 that's leaders why I say would, it seems like an antidote or, or something mm-hmm. better, certainly better. The, right. The NAR leaders, people in our churches would, would view people who attend Calvary Chapel churches as dead, you know, pretty much <laughs> spiritually, mm-hmm. spiritually dead. Um, the, I think the Calvary Chapel distanced itself earlier in its history from, from some NAR teachings. Mm-hmm. So, All so right. Fini- finish yeah. this sentence. You're spiritually alive if, and when go ahead. Okay. If you're, if you're, if you're a NAR, right in the NAR. Mm-hmm. you're spiritually alive. I can tell you're spiritually alive because, because you are encountering God's presence and seeing uh, miracles being performed uh, through yourself, uh, maybe daily. <laughs> and what's a miracle? Miracles that you're seeing, you're praying for people, seeing them be healed. Uh, you're, you're, um, you're having dreams and visions regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you're receiving prophetic words from other people and giving prophetic words to other people. It's, it's really about being spiritually alive is really about practicing the miraculous gifts mm-hmm. and having encounters with God and angels, mm-hmm. um, regularly. See, see when, when I hear this, this kind of thing, I've been interested in the paranormal since I was a teenager. And so I've, I've read a lot in it. I mean, we have an, another podcast where we do, you know, Christian view of paranormal stuff, and we, we focus on peer-reviewed literature there. Um, but I, I've read a lot of this stuff. Um, when, when, and when you really get into that field, you, you understand certain things. You understand how things can be misinterpreted, misprocessed. You, you learn that the power of suggestion is, is real. You learn how easy it is to sort of mislead people. And, and be misled, that sort of thing. So whenever I hear, when I heard you answer the question that way, I'm thinking that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self-suggestion, self-deception might be too, it might be an appropriate word, but in other words, you, you want this to, to be evident in your life so badly that you see it even when it's just not there. So I think of that and, you know, I, I also, you know, can't help but, but not hear very, I think, normative things that we read in the book of Acts, like self-sacrifice, just a, a selfless spirit, uh, repentance, you know, an, an emphasis on, um, you know, very practical, you know, help, you know, to people, uh, the, the all things in common, you know, kind of thing, which of course isn't communism. It's just, you know, you, you meet people's needs, you know, when the means are at your disposal, and you do it consistently. You know, in other words, I, I just I don't hear that. I don't hear about God's love. You know, his his if you if you repent, you know, God will forgive you. I don't I don't hear some very normative things uh, in this that I 
again, this, this seems kind of obvious to me, you know, in other words, what's missing, what's missing from this picture. The emphasis is consistently on, on something unusual, some unusual event that happens to me or that, that manifests around me or in response to me. It's, there's a lot of me going on here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, and I, and I don't, I don't hear things like, you know, being willing to suffer, you know, for the Lord. I, so, so Sudanese Christians who are laying down their lives for their faith because they haven't had a miracle, you know, leap from their fingertips. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. Really? Well, the theology is that Christ suffered, so we don't have to. That's that's the theology. Well, that, that's so, quite contrary to some pretty clear New Testament teaching, right? You know, but but that would make sense again in their context. That makes sense to say that. Holly, it, you, you've, you've, this is another fine mess. <laughs> uh, this, this really, this can get really messy. Uh, and I, I can, um, boy, I have all sorts of thoughts. None of them are terribly uplifting, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see what, why you're concerned, you know, what, do you think I'm overreacting? Um, do you think, uh, what, what do you do to help here? I mean, honestly, what, what, um, other than to talk about it, I mean, I, I guess that's probably the, the major thing at this point. And like you said, be gentle, uh, try to be you know, clear and gentle. But I, I'm just wondering, since some of this is so self-evident, why, why do you think, does conversation help? I mean, what, is, is, is all of this symptomatic of some deeper problem you know, that needs to be addressed you know, in our churches? Well, there's a, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts going through my head right now, too. Um, I mean, for one thing, I think uh, the de-emphasis on teaching doctrine in churches has really fostered an environment where people can be susceptible to these teachings. I, you know, if, if churches were, were, were really teaching people theology, doctrine, they would be able to spot the error, you know, but, but they, they can't spot it. Um, and, you know, and our leaders, I wrote a post recently on my blog about how one of the leading prophets in this movement, James Gole, grossly misinterpreted oh, I, a text oh, of scripture. It was Luke seven forty four, and it was unbelievable. But he's one that he is the prophet for that network I told you about earlier that has twenty five thousand churches in its network in sixty five nations. Now, can you imagine the influence he has? And did anybody? who he was teaching to the, that day, pick up their Bible and all they would have had to do done is read it right. like I did and, and see that it was being, being that he was completely misrepresenting what was, what was there. Yeah. You got the and, wrong guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. The wrong Paul or yeah. Yeah. The wrong Peter. But, um, so, so if, if people were learning to, to hermeneutics to read the Bible in context, if they were learning theology and doctrine in their churches more than they are. Um, and, and I think maybe that's kind of an inadvertent uh, problem that came out of the rise of non-denominational churches is, is these churches, uh, which I've, I've been a part of many non-denominational churches over the years, but they've de-emphasized doctrine because they want to focus on what binds us all together, the core beliefs. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I think uh, inadvertently, um, you know, People have stopped have stopped knowing doctrine and, and, and theology and, and thus aren't able to detect these errors. Wow. Yeah, it seems like a generational if if there's a fix to this, it would be generational. There's no there's no silver bullet. 
Well, and I am encouraged. You know, I just heard uh, a leader of the Assemblies of God in Bolivia just contacted me to tell me that their denomination just adopted some formal documents opposing NAR beliefs. I've been contacted uh, by a church that uh, asked for help drafting a position paper because their church was destroyed, almost destroyed by this movement. And the uh, new pastor who came in and the elders said, we need to adopt a position paper. So I'm I, on my blog, I'm encouraging churches to adopt position papers. Uh, as, as my co-author often said, it's going to take a movement to stop a movement. Mm-hmm. And we need to think strategically, you know, and organizations like large Christian organizations could adopt position papers, could take formal stances that would go far in, uh, you know, stemming this movement. Do, do you, do you run into, you know, when, when you suggest that, you know, if we, if we went to like the evangelical theological society, meaning we're in a room and you, and you're there and you, and you suggest that. My, my gut reaction would be to think what's going through a lot of people's heads again, because it's, it's that particular event where you don't have a lot of charismatic, you know, representation. You have some, but not a whole lot. I think that the dominant thought would be, well, that's a charismatic problem. Let them handle it. Yes. And that's been a problem. And Doug and I, in fact, did give a paper at the Evangelical Theological okay. Society a few years ago. It was well received. But um, yes, I think the pro- one reason this movement has been able to get so big is because a lot of people who aren't in the charismatic Pentecostal world, they're yeah, kind cares? of oblivious to what's going on there. And who cares? That's just what's going on in those churches. And But they need to start caring because it's coming into their churches. There are young people attending Baptist churches who are traveling to uh, International House of Prayer or Bethel Church in Reading to attend their conferences or viewing them online. People in their churches are reading books by these leaders. They just don't know it because they're oblivious to the teachings, many of them. And um, and so so and then we found when we were we were seeking publishers for our books, many of the mainstream large evangelical publishers would tell us, you know, this sounds like a great book, but we can't publish it because we've never heard of this movement. If we haven't heard of this movement, there won't be a readership for it. And that's been proven wrong. Uh, There's been, our books have have sold very well and been, there's been a large market for these books, but the publishers themselves, the editors at large publishing houses were, because they aren't in Pentecostal charismatic circles, didn't know this movement existed. And, and that's a shame because, uh, you know, it's, it, it's been able to grow and grow and grow. Last question. If, uh, again, I I don't want to make it sound like, you know, like some sort of, uh, you know, espionage event here. (laughs) If you suspect, you know, your friend or your church or somebody, you know, is, is being uh, unduly influenced or drawn into this. Give me one or two questions you would ask to sort of expose that that is happening or not happening. How would you reduce it to just one or two, again, kind of, you know, kind of like gotcha questions, but, but in other words, the answer would give you clarity on, you know, what they're really thinking. What would, what, you know, what would some questions be? Well, often I listen for references to organizations and leaders of this movement, um, and that will tell me, uh, you know, um, uh, they're planning on attending Bethel School Supernatural Ministry, or they're reading Bill Johnson's books, or, um, you know, um, 
that if they use certain buzzwords like fivefold ministry, that that comes from Ephesians 4:11. They they base that term on Ephesians 4:11 that God has given uh, Christ has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to govern the church. That's their core verse they use to support this this movement, and it's it's being used inappropriately. But um, so the term fivefold ministry, um, if they if they use terms like apostolic or prophetic refer to church leaders as apostles or prophets. Uh, like I say, use this kind of bringing heaven to earth phraseology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't know for sure, but these are all clues that that will make me think, okay, they've come under the influence of NAR teachings. And then it kind of helps me know how to kind of to begin approaching them and talking with them. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this has been good. I think it'll be uh, helpful. Uh, I'm sure we'll, It'll get a wide uh, listenership uh, for our audience. Uh, again, for me peripherally, it comes up. Um, you know, my—I guess this wasn't my—that wasn't my last question. <laughs> Just uh, I, what I'm looking for here is—is is how Hollywood handle this. Okay, so have you ever been asked uh, to go to you know speak at one of these NAR conferences or events or whatever or a show, uh, radio, TV, whatever? How would you handle that? Would you go? I mean, me personally, my my rule of thumb, you know, for a lot of things, not not just this, and I nobody's beaten their their way, you know, here from the NAR, you know, to specifically ask me this stuff. But I I, I do get enough threads that I'm figuring, you know, someday this is this is going to happen, and what should I do? My rule of thumb has been, I'll go anywhere if I can be useful, and and be useful means I'm not there to endorse anything. Uh, if something comes up. I'm going to just tell you what I think. If it's uncomfortable for you, well, that's kind of too bad. But that's what I think. This is the way I would approach this. I, I'm essentially free to criticize as well as you know do what, what you've asked me to do. Um, how would you handle you know something like that? You know, would would you go and speak your mind, or would you say, "Man, I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole"? I mean, how, well, they, how would you do that? If they invited me to come speak about the NAR, I would go <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. But but they would not do that. They uh, they they stifle criticism of the movement, and so that would never happen. But if I was being invited to speak about something else, um, no, I, I mean I don't think I would go. And here's the thing: there have been some some leaders, uh, evangelical leaders like Francis Chan, Ronnie Floyd of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Dallas Willard, some different people who have gone and to like the International House of Prayer and spoken at their mm-hmm. conferences, been on the platform there. And the problem is, is it's brought credibility to this movement because then they turn and say, well, we can't, we're not bad. If they'll come speak here, they right, think we're fine. Right. And that's been, and it's made up my job and Doug's work a lot harder. And because people don't want to listen to you when you say, wait, this movement is way off. It's dangerous. How can it be when these guys are are mm-hmm. speaking there and you know and so i've been very concerned about the credibility that that people have been brought to this movement and i think it's important to avoid um lending any credibility there hmm. all right well thanks for spending i guess a little over an hour with us uh again I, like i said i think that this will be useful it'll be helpful uh maybe it'll leave me a little controversial but that's fine we're used to that here so thanks for you know taking the time out 
and answering our questions. And Holly, oh, before, my pleasure. Thank and, you, Mike. And Holly, before mm-hmm. we let you go, can you tell us your blog, that address again, and your book where we can yeah. that? Yes, my blog is Spirit of Error, www.spiritoferror.org. And the books are A New Apostolic Reformation and uh, God's Super Apostles, and they can be found on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, no, I'm just very grateful to you, Mike, and to you, Trey, for, for having me on the program and for um, just you know helping uh, spread, spread the word to warn people about this movement. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, Mike. Well, I've got tons of questions. I mean, my mind is just racing about the subject matter here. Um, I mean, it just it's it's so dangerous to me. But yet, I mean, I can sympathize with these people wanting to believe Mm -hmm. in the supernatural and trying to tap into it and practice it, practicing it and believing in it. But it's such a fine line that can turn into. I don't know. I don't have the word, but uh, it's just dangerous. It seems like to me, and uh, it seems like a lot yeah, of you, people you are gullible and falling for stuff that's just yeah, you know, and especially when you marry it to things that that you know do have a scriptural attachment. You know, praying for people, fasting. You know, again, some of these things we talked about that are really normal, or at least should be normal, and Christians want to be involved in that. Those, you know, those are real hooks. You know, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with those things, but if they're essentially, it's kind of like the, the theological or the, the ecclesiastical version of clickbait. You know, we, we get people in the room and then we expose them to some of these other things. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can just see how this could be effectively growing like it is. Yeah, and I sympathize for these people because their intentions are good, their heart's in the right place, but they're how easily they're misled by these appointing apostles and uh I'm oblivious to it because I'm not a part of it, and I can't believe it's as big as it is, but it's almost like y'all talked about, you and Holly talked about earlier, it's almost like they're feeling a need for people that's not in the church. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think there's a vacuum there, and it's being filled, and, and it's, it's being filled with, with this. And it's the supernatural void that we're trying to fill, too. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's interesting. It's almost like the Naked Bible approach uh, goes head-to-head with the NAR. Yeah, you know, I I can I can sort of see that too, and you know, some of the stuff that that Holly alluded to about you know some of the teachings that she alluded to this one by James Gall, a particular passage that all you, really all you got to do is go read it and you realize that he messed it up. Uh, I've I've blogged about uh, somebody, you know, Apostle Brian Simmons, uh, claiming that Jesus visited him, you know, in person and commissioned him to make uh, a, a NAR NAR translation of the Bible. You know, it like come on. You know, and, and if and again, if you look at at who you know this person is, they don't have any cred- credentials to really be doing this. And, but there you go. You know, it, it it's just stuff like that that you you look at and you wonder like how how can these not be red flags? But they're not. They're just not. So we're probably going to be labeled on this show here. I, I can only imagine if this show becomes that popular, this episode, <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to get something. So I'm going to go ahead and coin a turn rather than NAR. I'm just going to call them the nah, like nah, nah, <laughs> nah, nah. nah. Yeah. But, yeah. We'll, we'll be the Jezebel podcast or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I can only see and hear that now. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I'm going to uh, keep my eye on that. All right, Mike. Well, That was a great episode, and uh, next week we're back into the book Hebrews. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. Hebrews chapter three. All right. Again, we just want to thank Holly Pivik for coming on our show. And we want to thank everybody else for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. 